Last week, I began talking about Jesus versus the Pharisees. And, and all of the teachings are up on my website, and so you can, you can always go and get those there at jmtour.com and follow the links to uh, audio files. But last week, we were talking about how Jesus had proclaimed upon that generation the unpardonable sin. And that's because of their saying that he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And so in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 through 32, he had proclaimed upon them the unpardonable sin, where he said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. And then Jesus makes very specific three times in the latter part of this chapter that this was directed toward that generation. And judgment came on that generation in, in 70 A.D. with the destru- destruction of Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, let me share with you something of history. There were about 100,000 Messianic Jews. 100,000 Jews that had come to the Lord. And they, they were actually defending Jerusalem right along with the non-Messianic Jews. The Jews that, that didn't receive Jesus as the Messiah. But then in, in uh, 66 A.D., when the siege came, the Roman siege came against Jerusalem, Jesus had left words to them in Matthew that says that when you see the armies gathering against Jerusalem, you're to flee. So in 68 AD, the siege lifted for about a six-month period. Those Jews then left Jerusalem, and one of the reasons they left is because the non-Christian Jews, the non-Messianic Jews, the Jews that did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, proclaimed another man as being the Messiah. And at that point, they could not fight alongside of them. And they went to a place, so those 100,000 Jews left, and they went to a place on the other side of the Jordan River. And they stayed in in that place. I believe it was called something like Pela. They stayed in that city. And then six months after that Roman siege had lifted, the siege returned in 68 A.D., And after another two years, the city fell, and every Jew living in that city was killed. But none of the Messianic believing Jews was killed, along with the destruction of Jerusalem. So very specific, the words of Jesus and how it had saved the Jews of that time. But as we learned about last time, and we saw how Jesus was constantly confronted by the Pharisees concerning the Mishnah, the Mishnaic Law. Not the Law of Moses, not the 613 commandments, but the thousands of commandments that had been written by men. And we saw that last time. And now they attempt to catch Jesus, not in violation of the Mishnaic Law, but in violation of the Mosaic Law, the 613 commandments that were laid down by Moses. And we see that in John chapter 8, where they try to catch him violating this law. Of, of Moses. And John chapter 8 is the famous story where they bring to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 8, verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. 
So you see in John chapter 8, verse 2, that Jesus sat down when He would teach. This was the very traditional way where, where uh, um, rabbis would teach. They would sit down to teach. And this is, in fact, how Jesus often taught. He would sit down to teach. And this is, in fact, how many rabbis continue to teach to this day. Verse 3, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they heard it and they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And he said to the woman uh, where she was in the center of the court. And he straightened up and Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did not anyone condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Jesus was particularly merciful with people caught in sexual sin. Jesus was merciful to everyone, but particularly those who were caught in sexual sin. There are four women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. All four of those women were Gentile women. All four of those women had either some offense of, of sin in their life, sexual sin in their life, or they, they had been raped in their lives, or they were the product of some incestual relationship. And Jesus proclaims forgiveness so much so that the book of Matthew breaks from traditional Jewish order naming only the, 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 the fathers in the genealogy of Jesus. He, he actually mentions four women. Jesus was particularly merciful with those who were caught in sexual sin. And Jesus calls this woman. So they bring this woman to her and they say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act. And it says the scribes in verse 3, scribes and Pharisees had brought the woman. And they said, We caught her in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? So you see, he is testing them, testing Jesus with the law of Moses. The Pharisees and the scribes are testing Jesus with the law of Moses. Moses said, stoner, what then do you say? But it was a trap. And the reason it was a trap is because if Jesus says, stone her, they could get him for sedition. Because the Romans had taken away, that very year, the Jews' right to capital punishment. They could not perform capital punishment. And so if Jesus were to say, stone her, they could turn him over to the Romans and say, he is, he, he is uh, uh, being found guilty of going against the Roman government because he is proclaiming a death sentence on a person when you have taken away the death sentence uh, proclamations from us. So he could have found, them, found her guilty of sedition. Could have, he, Jesus could have been found guilty of sedition, but they couldn't trap him with this because Jesus doesn't say stone her. Interestingly enough, it says that she was caught in the very act. She was caught in the very act. 
Well, that's odd. If she was caught in the very act, where is the man? The man also is guilty of adultery. You don't just catch one person in the act of adultery. That's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to catch one person in the act of adultery. You've got to catch two. But the man wasn't there. In fact, the man may have been there as one of the accusers. And then they say, and what do you say? And if Jesus then says, don't stone her, they would find him guilty of going against the law of Moses and they could say, ah, you see, he's not the Messiah because he violates the law of Moses. So Jesus doesn't say either of those. Jesus begins, he stoops down and he begins to write with his finger on the ground. And you can read all sorts of things about what he's written on the ground as if something remains in the sand there. We don't know what he wrote on the ground. One of the things that I've heard that I find most interesting, one author suggests that what he wrote on the ground were the names of women. The names of women that these accusers have slept with. So that as they read those names, they were like, whoa, maybe so. We don't know what he was writing on the ground. But what we do know is it says that he wrote on the ground with his finger, in the end of verse 6, but with his finger he wrote on the ground. How were the Ten Commandments given? Stone tablets written by the finger of God. The emphasis here is on his finger, he, with his finger he wrote on the ground. God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger, it says, on stone tablets and gave them to Moses. Twice, because the first set Moses broke in frustration when the Jews were, were, were worshipping idols. And when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said, He who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. It says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 9, and Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, and verse 7 in particular, that the first person to throw the stone at a guilty party has to be the one who witnessed the act. A person can only be found guilty on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Cannot be one. You cannot have a death sentence based upon the witness of just one person. Has to be two. Secondly, one of those witnesses who caught her in the act, caught the person in the act, has to throw the first stone. But the witness has to be not without any sin, but without that particular sin. If it's without any sin, then there could never be any capital punishment in Israel. Because no person is sinless, but without that sin. So he says, okay, he who is without this very sin, this sin of adultery, and he who caught her in the act, let him throw the first stone. You want to do it? You've got to do it the prescribed way of Moses. You want to see if we're doing it the way Moses has said? You want to test me with the law of Moses? Alright, God came with the law of Moses in a prescribed way, starting with the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. It is a prescribed way. The prescribed way you do it is the witness 
who found her guilty of adultery must cast the first stone. But that witness, he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Remember, you don't catch a woman in adultery alone. This was a setup. How do you set up a woman to bring to Jesus in this way? How do you, how do you set the thing up? You can't say, well, let's catch a woman in adultery. I mean, to catch a person in adultery is not something you can set up quickly. You're going to be waiting an awful long time. I don't know, you go to some seedy motel and you, know, you hang out there and you catch them. I mean, how do you, how do, you do this? Well, you set them up by being the very adulterer yourself. So the adulterer was likely in this group of people, the scribes and the Pharisees who were setting the thing up. He says he is going to have to catch the first, cast the first stone. So Jesus never says, don't stone her. He just says, let's bring it back to the law. This is what the law says. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then they all go away. And it's interesting. It says, and they begin going out. Verse 9. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. So the older ones began to leave first. Because they had probably committed adultery more times. There was more sin in their lives. Greater conviction. And eventually only the younger ones were left and they started leaving one by one. Because if the one who caught her in this sin was not going to cast the first stone, you couldn't fulfill the law of Moses yourselves by stoning her. The only way you could fulfill it was not to pass judgment on her. And Jesus was not the one who caught her in adultery. So he couldn't cast the first stone. You want to cast the first stone? You've got to go by the prescribed law of Moses. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. The 613 commandments. He fulfilled. That's why we don't have to. He fulfilled them. And then he says, Where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. The only one who is without sin... He says, I don't condemn you either. The mercies of God, the absolute mercies of God. I remember about four years ago, the former football coach at Rice was being interviewed by a newspaper and was absolutely set up. And newspapers do this. If you've ever been interviewed, this happens. And they set him up. Knowing that he was a Christian, they said, so what would you do if there were a homosexual on your team, on your football team, would you cut him from the team? And what the coach replied is, I'd have to think about that. That was his reply. I'd have to think about that. Well, that got him in huge trouble. How many people remember that? All right. So that got him in big trouble. He never said I'd cut him from the team. He said I'd have to think about that. Well, then the word went out, and the president, the former president of Rice, really got on his case. Because Rice is, 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 is a place that, that has equal opportunity, and so it, you, you can't hire or fire people based on their sexual preference. Churches can. 
but they don't get federal money. But when you start taking federal money, you can't, you can't do this. And so, you know, the, the former president had all these shirts made up, I'm not a homophobe, and distributed them at the football game. It was really wild. I couldn't understand why he was getting so interested in this. But anyway, then the football coach had to come back and apologize and say, no, I wouldn't come. Anyway, these students were up in arms. The undergraduates were so upset, the graduate students flat out didn't care. They just don't care. This was, was the first time the undergraduate population ever cared about football at all. They never care about football. But when it came to this issue of homosexuality, then they really cared. They, 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 could care le- they don't care anything about football players. They only care about the homosexual football players. They really cared about this thing. So they, wanted, they demanded that the, the football coach resign. They demanded that he be fired. They demanded this. They demanded apologies from him, blah, blah, blah. It went on. So a couple of students came to me. They said, what do you think of this? I said, you know, it's really quite interesting. These students do so much on this campus that is so offending sexually. I mean, they run around naked. They do all this, this strange stuff. And now they are demanding apologies because they are offended by the comment of the football coach. I said, do you know how many times I have been offended by the actions of the undergraduates? I said, who are the undergraduates to demand an apology? I said, when this woman who was caught in adultery came before Jesus, Jesus said, okay, he who was without sin, let him cast the first stone. And so they realized they weren't without sin themselves, so they didn't cast the stone. And he who had no sin, meaning Jesus, said, I don't condemn you either. So, if Jesus, the one who was without sin, doesn't condemn, then who is the one demanding an apology? If, if the righteous doesn't demand it, and those who realize that they are unrighteous aren't demanding it, I guess only the people who could demand it are the self-righteous. They didn't like to hear that. But this is what I told them. We are so quick to judge another. I mean, the the coach, this was between the coach and the administration, and he came out with his apology, but the whole thing was set up anyway. And remember, the Bible says, whatever a man sows, that he shall also reap. If we proclaim judgment upon another, we will reap judgment. We want to jump on somebody when they've been set up in the press. I guarantee you, if you do that, you yourself will be set up at some point in your life by the press or something and trapped in a statement. And you're like, well, well, I I didn't really mean it. Too late. You can't get your words back. And they'll publicize it and they'll publish it all over the place. And I've been set up. People have asked me for comments and in the newspaper they write about this and, and they will quote me and put it in quotes and then the quotation mark closes, and then there's another sentence. And a lot of people call me, you said such and such, I said, I never said it. He says, well, you said it in the paper. And I look at it, I said, well, look where the quotation mark ended. So they'll quote me, and then they'll put another sentence right after the quotation mark, but most people don't read it carefully enough to say, oh, that's where the quotation ended. And they set you up. And even when they don't set you up, sometimes you just say stupid things. And if you really thought about it a lot, you'd you'd be very careful. Jesus was so quick to forgive. 
and especially those who were caught in sexual sin. And in the evangelical church, the most offensive sin is the sexual sin. And the reason I think it is, is because evangelicals are so caught up with their own fantasy lives that they condemn those who actually lose it. Because they themselves wish they could do it, but they don't, and they chain themselves, and so they've got all this bitter, pent-up judgment upon others. And this doesn't condone the practice, it just says there is mercy. There is mercy. And in the very thing that they tried to catch Jesus, they couldn't catch Him. So in summary, from last week and this week, the first Messianic miracle that the, that the, that the um, Pharisees said only Messiah could do was to heal a leper. Jesus did that. He sent them back to the, to the, the, the uh, Pharisees and He said, Go show yourselves to the priests and let them declare over you that you're cleansed. Go show yourself to the priest. And the investigation began. The second messianic miracle was that he cast out a demon from a man who was a mute. They said only Messiah could do that. Instead of confessing his messiahship, they said he was able to cast him out because he's ruler of the demons. The third challenge came here where they tried to test him now. They, they, They tried to test him now with a man who was born blind. And he continues to, to measure up to their, their test. So they test him with a man who was born blind, and, and that, that, that comes in just a bit. But in John chapter 11, um, in John chapter 11, Jesus raises a man from, a, from the dead. And the reason he does this is as a testimony to the Jews. Remember that Jesus said it would be that... that uh, um, in John chapter 11, Jesus raises up Lazarus. Now, I want you to keep your finger there in John 11 and turn back to Matthew chapter, chapter uh, 13, Matthew chapter 12, what we've been reading out of. Once he proclaims upon them the unpardonable sin, he does no more miracles for them except the sign of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the sea. So Jesus says, after he proclaims to them the unpardonable sin, no more signs for you, no more, except the sign of Jonah. And he gives them three signs of Jonah. The first one is in the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. So if you turn over to John chapter 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. When they told him Lazarus was sick, he waited until he died. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But Jesus heard this. He said, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may, may be glorified. Now, Jesus loved Martha and, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he intentionally stayed two days longer. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. 
the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews just now are seeing to, seeking to stone you. And you're going there again. And then Jesus talks to them a little bit. Then he goes to Bethany down in verse 18. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, if I... Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she said this, when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews were there with her in the house and consoling her. And when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to run to the tomb there. Therefore, when Mary came to Jesus and she saw him, She fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, you come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man also from dying? So you see, when he came, it says that Martha went out in verse 20 to meet Jesus when he heard he was coming, but Mary stayed in the house. These are the two responses. Mary went to Jesus and said, if you had only been here, he would not have died. But Mary wouldn't leave the house. Our response when things devastating come into our lives, either we go to God And we say, God, why did you let this happen? If you're God, why did you let my child die? If you're God, why did you let my spouse die? If you're God, why did you let my mother die? Or the response is like Mary, I'm not leaving this house. I don't care if the Lord's coming. I'm upset with Him. I don't want to talk to God. And you know... Either of those responses in a situation like that is just fine. It's just fine. I was sitting with a young man who his father just went through an enormous amount and is going to go through a lot more. And we have prayed with this family, we have prayed with them for years concerning this and it's only gotten worse and worse and worse for his father. And I was sitting with him a couple of weeks ago and he says, you know, Jim, I am angry with God. And I said to him, that's okay. He looked at me and I said, no, no, really, that's okay. Lots of people are angry with God. God will get over it. 
He's had that happen to him many times before. It's not a problem. He'll get over it. He knows how to deal with that. I'm not going to sit here like Job's three friends and talk righteously about all the great things that you should be believing. You've gone through an enormous amount and will probably go through much more. I have nothing to say except God have mercy on you. God have mercy on you and on your family. What do you tell a person in that time? It doesn't bother me when people get angry with God when they've lost a loved one. I mean, this is a normal response. If you're God, why didn't you do this? Martha says, if you were here, he would not have died. We know you could have kept this from happening. And, Martha, Martha, and Mary's there stewing in the house. Here is the Lord. I washed His feet with my hair. I put ointment on His feet and washed His feet with my hair and wept over Him. And He loves me. He loves my family. He loved Lazarus and He let him die. We sent word to Him while Lazarus was still alive. And it took Him so long to get here. I mean, Jerusalem's only two miles away and it took Him two days. What's going on? Why didn't He respond? This is normal. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And this is the response that he gives to a woman when he says, Your brother will rise again. And she said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus corrects her. Jesus said, it's not just far off at the resurrection. He said, he who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the most comforting word. I told my kids, one day you may bury me in the ground, but remember, I'm not there. I will be very much alive. Remember, when someone is in Christ and they die, they're still very much alive. Not only will there be a resurrection on the last day, but they shall live even if they die. He who lives and believes in me shall never die, Jesus says. They shall never die. They are still alive. You see, well, they're gone. They're still alive. They're still alive. And that is my experience, the most comforting word that I can give to people who have lost a loved loved one. Is I show them this verse and it says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And that's not to say that there's not this deep pain and this deep loss But there is this truth, and Jesus gives it to her. And then Jesus sets to raise the man from the dead in verse 39. Jesus says, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jews teach, and it is in their teaching at that day, that after three days, on the third day there could be a resurrection, but not after four. 
absolutely impossible to be a resurrection after four days. That's what they taught. So Jesus waited four days. And Jesus said, Did I not say to you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. And because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. You see what he says? This is a testimony, Father, to them. Remember what he said to the Jews? I will only do this. This is the only sign you're going to get now to that generation. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah the prophet. The sign of Jonah is, as he was in the belly of the whale for three days, he came out the sign of resurrection. This is a testimony to them. He gives them the sign of resurrection. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around and a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing signs, and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And skip on down. Verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. He did the sign of resurrection, the sign of Jonah he gave to them. And all saw it, and all saw this as a testimony to them. And what was the Pharisees' response? They convened a council because this was again a messianic sign. And they conspired to kill him. After he healed the man who was a, a dumb, dumb and, and, and was mute. What happened? After he healed him, they said, oh, he healed him by the power of Beelzebul, the demon. Now they proclaim death to him for raising a dead man from the grave. And he says, I've done this as a sign for you. They rejected him, first based on demon possession, and now they sentence him to death because of the sign of Jonah. The second sign of Jonah that he, gave, that he gave them was the sign of his own resurrection. And the third sign of Jonah is yet to come. There are two witnesses it talks about in the book of Revelation. Three and a half years into the tribulation, there's going to be two prophets who are going to be raised up. The Antichrist will kill those two prophets, the scriptures say. And then after three days, they will be raised to life again. And on that third day, on that, on that third sign of the resurrection, the Jews will receive the Lord. They will see that resurrection and they will return. Because Jesus said, turn back to Matthew chapter 12 to wrap this up. In Matthew chapter 12, sorry, he talks about this in, in, um, in, Ma in Matthew chapter 23 when he proclaims the final judgment on them. In Matthew chapter 23, he proclaims the woes upon the people. And he talks about the eight woes. There are really seven woes, but the first and the last are the same, and he, he just brings them back on each other. He just brings them right back around. And, and after he proclaims these wo woes upon them, in, verse, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 39, 
is where he proclaims exactly what they're going to say. He says, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He proclaims judgment on the nation in Matthew chapter 23. And then at the end of that he says in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how, who, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. He said, I would have established the messianic kingdom at this time, but it will not be established now. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is no stipulation upon when the rapture will occur, when those believers in Christ will be taken. That could happen at any moment. But there is a stipulation upon when the second coming will occur. The second coming will not occur until Israel says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is only going to come, it says in the book of Revelation, after the two witnesses rise up from the grave. The Jews will see it and give glory to God. They will look upon Him whom they have pierced. They will say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord will return. All of Israel, it says, on that day will be saved. All of Israel will be drawn in. All of Israel will be saved on that day. The church, those who are in Christ, will already be gone will already be raptured. There will be many other believers who were not yet believers at the time of the rapture, but they will come to know the Lord during that time, during the time of tribulation. And then he says, the second coming will, will take place when the leaders of Israel say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the second coming will come, Jesus will then set up the Messianic kingdom. We are not living in the Messianic kingdom. The Scriptures clearly say in the New Testament we are living in the mystery kingdom time. The Messianic kingdom will be set up where Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. For a thousand years He will reign from Jerusalem. And that we are not living in that time of reign yet. That's upon the time of His return. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 12. So what Matthew chapter 12 documents then, remember we saw it last week. He said, from this moment, from this time, his whole teaching changed and he began to speak to them in parables. And so in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, it says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Remember, when you jump, you can't, you jump around in the Scriptures, you never know what happens one day to another unless it says, and on that same day, or the very next day. On the same day that he had proclaimed again upon them the unpardonable sin, on that very same day, it says, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, in, in Matthew 13, verse 1. And large crowds gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke to them in, them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on the rocky places, and they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up and began, and sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root, and they withered away. Others fell upon the thorns, and the thorns came and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, 
Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Remember what we said last time. Right after this time is when he started teaching in parables. Right after he proclaimed to them the unpardonable sin, he changed the method of teaching. He spoke only in parables. It says in scriptures, he didn't teach the masses at all without a parable. But then he would explain it privately to the disciples. In verse 18, he began to, he, he began to explain to them... Um, well, let, let's look in verse 17... For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see them, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear the parable of the sower. He who, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. You see what he says? He says the seed is still good. When you preach the gospel, the seed is still good. He said, but before it can take root in the person's heart, the enemies come and snatch it away. And that's why you can have a group of people and you preach the word to them. And some respond and some are like, I don't know what he's talking about. And it does nothing, absolutely nothing to them. And Jesus here concedes that the enemy has snatched away that seed before it could ever take any sort of root. Verse 20. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky place. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arise, because of the word, immediately he falls away. Another response that happens among people is they hear the word of God. They go, wow, that's true. That's powerful. This is really exciting. And then within a month, they're gone. It just... There's no effect. It's just gone away from their lives. And you're like, I thought, I thought you really got touched that night. Ah, well, no, no, no. Remember you got so excited about this that night. And then it's gone. Jesus can see that this happens. There's no firm root. There's nothing there. It can spring up very quickly. But then it goes away really quickly. Verse 22, And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I think this is most of what our church is filled with. You say, well, how can you be so judgmental? I just look at the fruit. Jesus said, you will know them by the fruit. When a life becomes unfruitful, when you see no substantive change, no substantive difference between the person who sits here on Sunday and the person who goes to the beach on Sunday or plays softball on Sunday, when you see no substantive difference, Jesus said, this is that one who's been choked out by the deceitfulness of wealth, by the worries of the world. You know, riches can be absolutely deceitful. So many times you see young people say, you know, I've got to do this. I was talking with one young man and I said, well, what, what do you want to do in life? He said, well, I want to make, and this is a Christian guy, I want to make a lot of money, sort of a means to an end, so that, you know, I, I can retire at a young age and then do some other things that I want to do. And I'm thinking, you fool. You absolute fool. You want to just make a bunch of money and so then you can settle back? This is so unscriptural. 
Your life is about to be choked out. If God should bless you with money, praise God. The response should be, I want to serve God. I'd like to have a career as an engineer, as a stockbroker, whatever it is, but in service to the Lord. And if God should bless me, let Him bless me. But not that I want to get done with this as a means to an end so then I can retire. What do you want to sit on your fat behind? What do you mean, retire as a means to an end? What are you you going to do? It is so deceptive, and riches are deceptive. And you know what happens when you get all these riches? You you go and you you sit at the country club and you complain that the, the, the iced tea isn't brought to you quick enough. This is what happens. It's deceitful. It's utterly deceitful. The deceitfulness of riches. Learn to be gracious and giving. Start with a tenth of your income. Start with a tenth. You say, well, that's not in the New Testament. It's not. It's in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it says they gave everything. So take your choice. What do you want to give? Start with 10% and learn to give that faithfully. You say, well, when I get a real job, then I'll start giving. Right now, I don't make much. You start giving now. The more you make, the harder it is to give 10%. You say, that can't be. Let me tell you, it is true, it is true, it is true. Everybody that I ever talk to who then has a real job confesses it is harder to give 10% when you're making more money. The easiest time to give 10% is when you're making little. You give 10% to start. You learn to be gracious. Learn to be giving. And let that be a start. And don't get so antsy when when the pastor talks once a year about giving. Oh, I hate when he talks about it. He talks about it once a year. Even if he talks about it twice, too bad. Learn. Learn to give. And then if you gave, you wouldn't be so stinking selfish and upset when they started talking about giving. If you're giving, you're just like, praise God, he's talking about giving. Amen. Rather than, I hate when he talks about this. If you hate it when he talks about this, it means you're cheap. It means you're stingy. It means you're not giving enough. If you're giving enough, there's no conviction there. You just say, amen. Preach on, brother. Preach it again. Preach it louder. If it bothers you when they talk about money, it's because you're stingy. That's where most of us are. And God wants to break us of our stinginess. And you know what happens as you learn to give? That chokehold of money begins to be freed from your life. And if you're a student and all you get is $100 a month, it's called $10, in case you want to know. Alright? $10. You give it. You give 10% and let that be a start. And when you get more, <clears throat> commit to giving more. So that it's not a big deal in your life. Because riches can absolutely choke people out. And worries, it says. And the worry, it, it says worries of the world. You can be so concerned. Oh, I, I, I got to work hard. I got to work hard. I, I got you know, to make my car payment. I got to supply for my family. You know, it's a good thing to, to take care of your family, you know. Well, the worries of the world can choke out a relationship with God. To think that you've got to get to work without reading your Bible. The worries of the world can choke out a relationship. So that the life becomes unfruitful. Without getting that daily manna, it becomes unfruitful. And then he says, And the one whom the seed is sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word of God, understands it, and bears fruit 
and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Everybody has different ministries. Some people are like Joel Osteen, and they have a church of 50,000, or Ed Young, church of 40,000, and some are pastors of a church of 50. And that's okay. Some were made to be pastors of small churches, and they relate to people in small churches. Some were made to be pastors of 50,000, and they don't have to know the name of everybody. They really don't. People say, well, how can they know the name of 50,000? They can't. But they have a pastoral staff of 200 under them, and among that pastoral staff, most people who are involved are known. And that's okay. Everybody bears a differently and a different amount of fruit and everybody has different gifts and that's okay, Jesus says. But it's important that fruit is born. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You because Jesus is merciful to sinners and particularly merciful to those who have been caught in sexual sin. And Lord Jesus, I thank You because You proclaim upon us to be fruitful. And Father, I pray for these young people that they would learn to be fruitful, that the word that they hear would not be snatched away by the enemy, that for the unbelievers here, as they hear this word, the enemy would not snatch this word away, that they would come into relationship with Jesus. Father, that the... That there would be roots going on down in their lives. And Father, that the worries of the world and deceitfulness of riches would not cause them to lose out in bearing fruit. And Father, I pray that many would be raised up from this group to bear a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. Father, that you would raise up much fruit through these young people and draw them to your Son. Father, have mercy on them, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.